greet you. As always, we're glad that you're here with us today. Well, we're getting close to the end of our time in the book of 1 Corinthians, but the topics that we're discussing are still incredibly important to the church today. Now, as we've seen already, Paul loves the local church in Corinth like a father loves his child. That's how deep the love is. And the internal health and the external mission of this church mean the world to someone like Paul. That's why he's refused to let the various problems in Corinth go unaddressed. Paul really, truly believes that the vitality, the survival of this local church is at stake. Now, last week, we continued talking about the theme of public corporate worship. Whether it was through making controversial public statements with their head coverings or their hairstyles, or through their obsession with flashy spiritual gifts like the gift of tongues. The point was this. The problem was this. The Corinthians were guilty of making public worship about them rather than making it about God. They were more concerned about showing off their gifts or making statements about their status or their independence, drawing people's eyes towards them instead of pointing people's eyes towards God himself. But the kind of worship that glorifies God, the kind of worship that builds up the church and convicts unbelievers of sin, that worship is not about us. The worship that does those good things is the worship that turns our attention away from us and toward God instead. Worship back then wasn't supposed to be about the Corinthians. And worship today isn't supposed to be about us. Worship in the church is meant to be about God. So today we pick up with something that directly contributes to that topic, the problem of right worship. And what we'll talk about today is right doctrine. And what we mean by that, simply put, is that you can't worship God well if you don't have a proper understanding of who God is what God has done, what he's doing now, and what he will do in the future through his son, Jesus Christ. In the church, sound doctrine, right teaching, what we believe, those things really, truly matter. So open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide and take one of those home with you if you don't own a Bible. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. But before we read, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've given to us, all the ways that you provide for us. Not just the big ways that we see, but the little ways that we take for granted. Uh, The fact that we woke up this morning with roofs over our head on a rainy day, uh, that we were able to sleep in beds and put on clothes and eat food and even breathe air, uh, just the gift of life that you've given us. Father, as we turn to your word this morning, our goal every single week is to see the truth of who you are, that you've given us your word in order that we might know you better. You want to be known by us. And that is incredibly humbling to think that people like us, normal people living in a normal place, doing normal things, thinking that we're really insignificant in the big scheme of things. It's humbling to think that you, the God of the universe, 
want us to know you. So, Father, I pray that we would never take for granted, never cheapen the privilege that we have of reading your word, and that we would be devoted to knowing the truth about who you are and what you've done and what you're doing and what you will do. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who makes our relationship with you possible. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. Well, let's get something out on the table before we actually read in 1 Corinthians 15, and that's this. Let's admit that sometimes we think doctrine is boring. Sometimes we hear the word doctrine and we get a little bit drowsy, don't we? Like some of the Corinthians that we've read about, many of us would rather focus on the aspects of the Christian life that are a little more exciting, maybe a little more exotic outside of doctrine. We say things like, you know, I just can't really get into that kind of thing. I don't really like reading thick books or trying to understand fancy theological terms. And I really don't care what the Greek or Hebrew meaning of that word actually is. I just want to worship. I just want to serve. That's what speaks to me. Now, it's true that we all have different personalities and different ways of thinking and different ways of learning. And as a result of that, we will often gravitate to different things. That's all well and good. It's good to have diversity within the body of Christ. It's good that we have people who are moved by doctrine. It's good to have people who are moved by worship music. It's good to have people who are moved by serving the poor. It's good to have people who are moved by going out into a park and seeing God's creation. All of those things are good. All of those things are great for the church. But none of that is an excuse to neglect or downplay the importance of good, sound Christian doctrine. Good, sound teaching within the church of Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians 14, verse 14. This is from the passage we read last week. Paul writes, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Paul makes it clear that the church simply can't dispense with good, sound instruction, good, sound teaching that engages our minds and challenges us to think deeply. It's good to have worship that moves us emotionally. It's good to have different experiences of God that move us. But we cannot neglect the importance of engaging our minds with good, sound doctrine. The truth of who God is and thinking deeply about what that means. So let's start reading in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, our primary passage this morning. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Remember that phrase in verse three, verse two, rather, unless you believed in vain. We'll come back to those words. Verse three, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, 
that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So starting out, Paul looks to remind the Corinthians again of the core truth of the gospel. Surprise, right? He seems to talk about that a lot. And we in the church talk about that a lot, too, don't we? We use that phrase, the gospel, left and right. We want to communicate the gospel. We want to share the gospel. We want to be gospel-centered. Gospel this, gospel that. We use those words a lot. But what is Paul referring to? What's he mean when he says those words? And what do we mean when we use those words? The gospel. Well, look earlier in the book. Paul says the gospel is what I preach to you. Well, what did Paul preach to them? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. That's the message. We preach Christ crucified. Chapter 2, verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. For Paul, that's the gospel. That's the message that he preached to them. Christ crucified over and over and over again. But here Paul elaborates a little bit more on what the crucifixion was really all about. You see, according to Paul, the crucifixion wasn't just some freak accident. It was not a tragedy of an up-and-coming religious teacher cut down in his youth. Jesus was not the victim of circumstance, someone in the wrong place at the wrong time. Paul makes it clear that Jesus was crucified out of obedience to and in accordance with the will of God the Father. The crucifixion was no accident. But here Paul says more. This event, the crucifixion, Christ crucified, the message I preach to you. Christ was specifically crucified for our sins. Paul's sins, the Corinthians' sins, your sins, my sins. That's why Jesus died. Jesus is our substitute, dying in our place in order that we may live. He takes the penalty that we deserve because it's a penalty that we would have to pay in eternity apart from God. Jesus is the ultimate sacrificial lamb once and for all, the perfect suffering servant. And if you ever find yourself thinking that doctrine is boring or lame or a waste of time or just idle speculation about big ideas that really don't affect me very much. Think about this doctrine. Think about the gospel, the message that Paul preached, that they received, in which they now stand, and by which we are being saved. If you think doctrine is boring, read these words again, that Christ died for our sins, your sins, my sins. But as if that's not enough. 
Paul doesn't just talk about the crucifixion. He doesn't leave it there when he's referring to the gospel that he preached to them. He talks about the resurrection, too. After all, the resurrection is what makes the gospel good news. The good news is that Christ didn't just die. The crucifixion wasn't the end of things. God raised him from the dead. People saw Jesus physically alive, doing all the things that living physical people do. Things like eating, drinking, talking, breathing. After his obvious, undeniable death. And this resurrection, Jesus' victory over sin and death, and even Satan himself, confirms everything Jesus ever claimed about his identity as God's son. It confirms everything he taught, every miracle he performed. It confirms that he really, truly is the Messiah, that his crucifixion really is a sufficient sacrifice for our sins. So again, if you think Christian doctrine is boring, if you think it's just big ideas that don't really affect me, then we're not reading the same story. Now, admittedly, this might not be anything new for someone who's been a Christian for a while. These might be things that you've heard before, things that you've heard preached before. But it never hurts to have a reminder, right? So I pray that we would never lose a sense of awe. Never lose a sense of wonder when we read that Christ would die for our sins. That Christ rose from the grave. I pray that we would never lose that sense of wonder and awe. But I also pray that we would never stray from this doctrine. That we would never wander from this sound Christian teaching. The good news of the gospel. Because that appears to be what some of the Corinthians had been doing. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Remember those words earlier? Verse 2, unless you believed in vain... He's using those words again. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So apparently some Corinthians began to second guess this whole idea of resurrection, this doctrine of Christ rising from the grave. And if they're right about this core doctrine of their Christian faith being wrong, if they're right that there really is no resurrection of the dead, Paul says that the consequences for them are absolutely disastrous. He reminds them that if there really is no resurrection of the dead, if you're right, then that means that Jesus isn't alive. And if Jesus isn't alive, then apparently he really wasn't the son of God after all. 
And if that's the case, I mean, his teachings, they can probably be done away with. He explicitly taught that he would rise from the grave and he got that one wrong. So who's to say he's right about anything else that he said? And what about the miracles? Well, the miracles he performed could have just been optical illusions, right? And that crucifixion, that death on the cross that Jesus suffered, that wasn't really a victory. That was a defeat if he didn't rise from the grave. No resurrection. It also means that all of those sermons that Paul and the other Christians preached, all those sermons were wrong. If Jesus is still dead, that means they've been saying things about God that simply aren't true. And misrepresenting God is a pretty serious offense. Just ask the false prophets of the Old Testament. If there is no resurrection, their faith is futile. It's useless. Those who died with the belief and the hope and the confidence that they would spend eternity in God's presence upon their death because of what Christ did for them. Nope. Sorry. They were fooling themselves all along. It was all too good to be true. And we're fooling ourselves as well today. And no resurrection means that our sins aren't forgiven like we thought they were. Apparently that sacrifice wasn't quite sufficient enough, was it? If Christ is still dead, then we're no better off than we were before. The point is that if these Corinthians are right, if there really is no resurrection, we Christians are the most pathetic people in the world. We've lied about God to ourselves. We've lied about God to others. All of our obedience, all of our trust, all of our suffering, all of our faith, all of our hope, all of those things were meaningless. We've been living a lie. Everything that Paul went through, the imprisonments, the beatings, the shipwrecks, the opposition, the sleepless nights, the hunger and the thirst, the daily pressure of his calling. It was all just for a sham. If all this stuff is true, there really is no resurrection. You can't blame Paul for having a poor attitude, can you? Chapter 32 of 1 Corinthians 15. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The ancient version of YOLO. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 18. The preacher says, you like that. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment and all the toil with which one toils under the sun. The few days of his life that God has given him for this is his lot. If there is no resurrection, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let's live it up because once we die, that's it. That's the end of it. So have fun while you can, right? Church historian Yaroslav Pelikan writes, If Christ is risen, then nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, then nothing else matters. He's right. If Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Right?
Well, not so fast. Paul has a little more to say. Chapter 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Just when things couldn't get any darker, just when things couldn't get any more depressing in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul turns the tables. And he says, you know what? You're right. If Christ hasn't been raised, we're pathetic. If Christ hasn't been raised, our preaching is in vain. If Christ hasn't been raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But here's the thing, people. Christ has been raised. In the paragraph before, Paul said the word if six different times. If this is true, if that is true, if this is true. But he doesn't use the word if here. Paul says, in fact, Christ has been raised. No question about it. No ifs, ands or buts about it. Christ is alive. And because Christ is alive, because Christ has been raised, because there is a resurrection, we too will be raised one day. We eagerly look forward to the day when we have new bodies uncorrupted by the consequences of sin, no longer subject to death and decay. Paul gives us this imagery in verses 54 and 55. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? You know, we look around today and death still has some victory, doesn't it? Because people still die. Death still wins. Death still has some sting because when people die, we mourn. We grieve. But there will be a day when death has no victory over us. Death has no sting over us. Death has no victory and no sting over Christ because he's already been raised. The first fruits. But there will come a day when it will have no victory and no sting over us either. And we look forward to that day. So you put it all together, and what does it mean? Christ has been raised. We will be raised. Big doctrines, big theological ideas, right? Well, it means that nothing we do for the sake of the gospel, the message that Paul preached, that they received, which they stand in, by which they are being saved, nothing that they do for the gospel and nothing that we do for the gospel is a waste. It's not a waste because Jesus really is the son of God. His teachings and his miracles really were from God. He really did defeat death, sin and Satan himself. His sacrifice for our sins really was sufficient. We aren't lying to ourselves and we aren't lying to others about God. Our faith is not futile. Those who have already died in Christ were not hopeless. They were not pathetic. They really have received their reward and we aren't to be pitied as well. And Paul's faith, his work, our faith and our work 
None of it was pointless. None of it was in vain. Look at verse 58. Paul ends the chapter by saying this. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He opened the chapter by saying, unless you believed in vain, unless you believed in vain. Well, here Paul says, no, you didn't believe in vain because Christ really is risen and you too will be raised. Everything we talked about today is doctrine. This is doctrine. Stuff that the Bible teaches, stuff that we believe as Christians, stuff that we teach to others. So if you think that doctrine is boring or doesn't really affect you, ask yourself this question. How would my life be different if Christ wasn't crucified and Christ wasn't raised? Not only how would my life be different, but how would my outlook on eternity be? Because again, if Christ is not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. There's nothing else to look forward to. And according to Paul, life would be very different for you and for me if Christian doctrine isn't true. He makes it clear to the Corinthians that sacrificing doctrine Sacrificing good teaching, sacrificing the truth of who God is and what he has done through Jesus Christ will cause unspeakable damage to them in this life and in the next. But in spite of that, there are churches out there that will sacrifice the teaching of good, sound doctrine to make Christianity more acceptable for our day and age. They may justify it by saying that, you know, people don't want to learn doctrine. People want to be entertained. People don't want to be challenged to think deeply about God. People just want something to make them feel better during times of trouble. Some will say that the crucifixion, that doctrine, is too violent, too bloody, too barbaric for civilized people like us. A doctrine like that, it makes people uncomfortable. So avoid the topic entirely. Take the cross off the wall. And the resurrection, well, that doctrine? Those cavemen back in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago may have been fooled, but we're much more enlightened today, right? We know that resurrection simply isn't realistic. But if you sacrifice good, sound doctrine, doctrine like this, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. If you give that up, what you're left with can hardly be called the Christian faith. And it will be disastrous for a church to neglect sound doctrine. So doctrine matters here in this church building. Teaching sound doctrine is the one thing that the church back then and today offers that no one else really can offer. If all you care about is community, join a book club. If all you care about is music, go to a concert. 
If all you care about is serving the community, I'm sure the Parks and Rec Department can put you to work. But what sets the church apart from every other group, every other institution, every other 501c3 nonprofit organization is that we teach sound doctrine. And if we don't take doctrine seriously, we cease to be the church that God has called us to be. And if we don't have the proper teaching of who God is as revealed in his word, then everything else we do really, truly is in vain. But doctrine doesn't just matter to the church. It matters to you as an individual follower of Christ. Ask yourself again, how would my life be different if the core doctrines of Christianity weren't true? How would my life be different if my church didn't teach the core doctrines of Christianity? A wrong understanding of what God has done through Jesus Christ will have a practical impact on your everyday life that really can be disastrous. And that's not even counting the impact it will have on your eternity. So doctrine doesn't just matter to the church, doesn't just matter to individuals. Our doctrine even matters to a lost and dying world. We do the world no favors when we soften sound doctrine or when we sacrifice it entirely. We're not helping them when we do that. Those people might not know it yet, but unbelievers need to be confronted with good, sound Christian doctrine, need to be confronted with the truth. And we can't be held responsible for those who reject it. But we absolutely have a responsibility to proclaim it. That was true for the Corinthians. And it's true for us, too. You know, our church doesn't always get everything right. Surprise. Shocker. Sometimes there's a misprint in the bulletin. Sometimes the worship team plays the wrong note. Sometimes I stumble over my words. Sometimes we don't communicate the right time for an event. Sometimes the elders make decisions that we regret. All those things happen from time to time. We're human. We make mistakes. But one mistake that we simply can't afford to make is neglecting sound doctrine or explicitly teaching false doctrine. If we do that, the church ceases to be the church. Your outlook on eternity changes disastrously. And we fail to serve a dying world in the way that they need to be served. We absolutely must stick to good, sound Christian doctrine. We must keep proclaiming the gospel, the good news that Paul preached to the Corinthians and that we preach here. Because if we mess that up, If we abandon sound doctrine, we can't call ourselves a church. There is simply too much at stake for us to get doctrine wrong. So I pray that as we leave here this morning, that you would take time to read the word of God. To educate yourself on sound doctrine. I pray that you would hold me, that you would hold our elders accountable To ensure that we preach sound doctrine as well. And I pray that we as a church, out of love for God, 
and love for the world around us would never stop proclaiming the good news, would never sacrifice it, and would never soften it, and would never neglect it. Let's pray. Father, again, we are so grateful for your word that you don't leave us guessing what sound doctrine is. We don't have to come up with it on our own. We don't have to develop our own opinions. We don't have to develop some wild theories about who you are, what you've done. You've told us who you are. You've told us what you've done. And like we talked about last week, the role of a prophet is simply to take the message that you give them and go out and share it with the people who need to hear it. Father, in our world today, you have given us a message. You have given us the gospel. You have saved us through the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. And we've been charged to go out and share that message with the world around us. So, Father, I pray that we would do that. But before we get that far, before we take doctrine out into the world, I pray that we would ensure that we know it ourselves. That we are reminded that we find our confidence in the fact that Christ died for our sins. Past, present, future, big, small, in our minds, public, private. Christ died for our sins. I pray that we would never, ever, ever lose sight of that. That that doctrine would be such a core part of who we are as people but such a core part of who we are as a church. We will get other things wrong, but I pray that we wouldn't get that wrong, that we would be devoted to your gospel. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who died for us according to the scriptures and, in fact, has been raised and that we have not believed in vain. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.